And I certainly think your point about women feeling empowered is really important because by reading these books, we also learn not just how crimes occur, but the aftermath of crime. We learn about how investigations unfold or perhaps don't unfold. We learn about the justice system and you know, its successes as well as its failings, which I think is, is really important. Welcome. I'm Izzy Roberts-Orr, Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers Festival, and you're listening to the Digital Writers Festival podcast. The Digital Writers Festival 2018 is an online festival exploring the unique relationship between technology and storytelling, accessible anywhere, anytime, by anyone with an internet connection. Join us right here in hyperspace between the 30th of October and the 3rd of November and find our full program at digitalwritersfestival.com. Come in, get comfortable, and get curious as we hear from storytellers and artists from across the world wide web. While the true crime genre is booming, we are brooding. In a world saturated by violence, how does true crime pull us in and keep us listening in droves? Welcome to the Digital Writers Festival podcast, where we'll dwell on these questions and more. My name's Amy Knight. I'm a writer and critic from Ghana Yada, and I'm writing a non-fiction book about women and true crime. Uh, I'm Amy McQuire. I'm a Durumbal and South Sea Islander woman. Uh, and over the past three years, I've been investigating the wrongful conviction of Aboriginal man Kevin Henry through the investigative podcast Curtain. And I'm also currently writing a book about Kevin's case. I'm Rachel Franks. I work at the State Library of New South Wales and I'm a conjoint fellow at the University of Newcastle. I'm currently doing research on why true crime is such an important type of storytelling. Thank you, Amy and Rachel. To begin, I want to acknowledge the First Nations, first storytellers and traditional custodians of the stolen land on which I'm an uninvited guest. They're the Kaurna people of the Adelaide Plains. I pay my respects to the elders, past, present and emerging, and to anyone listening who has a connection to the world's oldest continuing culture. Um, I also want to acknowledge my own ancestors, the Durumbal people, whose traditional lands I live on and I'm speaking from today. Um, I want to acknowledge what was the first true crime story of this country, the theft of Aboriginal lands across the continent and the massacring and breaking up of hundreds of Aboriginal nations, including my own. I acknowledge that I live, work and write on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, a place now known as Sydney. I pay my sincere respects to Elders past, present and emerging and I extend that respect to any Aboriginal Australians listening to this podcast. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the pop cultural juggernaut that is true crime. Um, and I just want to include a note up at the top that this will include the names of deceased people and some topics that might not be appropriate for all listeners. So take care of yourselves while listening. What are the ethical, cultural and personal implications of engaging with true crime? Can it heal the herd in our communities or are we here only to tour through other people's trauma? Amy and Rachel, um, my first question for both of you is whether you consider yourselves true crime fans. It seems like such a fraught term and one that I have uh, an evolving relationship to. 
Amy, do you think of yourself as a fan of the true crime genre? Um, This is really hypocritical of me, but I find the current fascination with true crime in a way a bit sickening. But at the same time, I, like so many others, are at the same time fascinated by it. So, yeah, I I think I'd consider myself a fan, not so much of podcasts, but um, documentary series and books. But I'm really more interested um, in the documentaries and the books that really um, expose flaws in the justice system and that really tie these really individual cases um, to the wider problems in society. So I'm sort of a fan of some parts of the genre and uh, quite sickened by other parts, but at the same time, I'm a consumer of both. So I acknowledge my hypocrisy in that. (laughs) I'm with you there. I think the investigative stuff is can be really interesting and very distinct from the uh, more salacious kind of um, homemade podcasts and that kind of thing. Um, Rachel, what about you? Fan is quite a difficult word, I think, when it comes to true crime. It all it does sound slightly wrong, almost too enthusiastic. So I say that I'm a reader of true crime, but like Amy, I'm I'm selective in the types of true crime that I'm able to to read and not feel too uncomfortable, too intrusive into a victim's life. Yeah, I think that kind of uh, empathy sometimes gets a little bit lost in the discourse around this, um, especially in some of the online true crime communities that have sprung up, like devoted to particular podcasts um, we might touch on that again later um, I'm interested in when and why you both first started engaging with the genre and um, Amy do you have a particular um, memory or text of the first time you felt interested in true crime yeah I mean it was interesting because I think we've all consumed um, a lot of true crime, even as we grow up. It's sort of everywhere. Um, And, you know, you have the crime channel on Foxtel and you'll have documentaries. And I'm one of those ones who have fallen into, you know, like a YouTube rabbit hole looking at, you know, documentaries about serial killers and everything. But, you know, I used to do a story and I, I get obsessed with certain stories that I do. And one of them was on the case of Malcolm Maiden, who was an Aboriginal man. Um, who murdered two Aboriginal women in Dubbo in 2005. And then he went on the run for seven years. So I was sort of following his case and doing stories on it. And I found that everyone was really chasing shadows, like the police were chasing the literal shadow of Malcolm Naden through the New South Wales bush. The media were chasing the shadows of a man they had built a mythology around based on him being Aboriginal. And um, the Aboriginal communities in New South Wales had really built up their own mythology and there were so many sightings of Malcolm that were proven to be untrue sightings but he'd be seen at like the back of Tari Mission or waiting for a train at Redfern. So you know working on that story um, but becoming close to the victim's families I started to get really interested in it but in a different way because I felt that um, there was this there were a lot of stories within Aboriginal Australia that weren't being told properly and a lot of it was based on the lack or the the botched investigations by police, a lot of it stemmed from racism. So I've really been interested in cases like um, that revolve around wrongful convictions, 
or cases revolving around um, vulnerable communities. Um, but yeah, like I'm more into documentary series like Making a Murderer and The Staircase and Murder on a Sunday Morning, Central Park Five and The Keepers more so than podcasts. But I do occasionally get interested in the more salacious ones, which I acknowledge is so hypocritical of me. <laughs> They're designed to do that to us though, and especially like leveraging those aspects of um, mythology and speculation like you're talking about. Um, it's it's so hard to resist that. Rachel, what first piqued your interest about the genre? Well, I've been reading crime fiction since I was a teenager and I always thought I would stay firmly in the realm of the made-up crime rather than look too closely at true crimes. But as the years passed and I saw the similarities between crime fiction and true crime and now I probably read more true stories than, than fictional ones and I came to that looking at Australian colonial newspapers and the layout for older newspapers is much different to what we have today. Everything was sort of squashed in and shoved as much as possible on the page. And there were these dreadful stories of gruesome murders and just immediately followed on the next line with sports scores. And I just really wanted to get into how we were able to just consume so readily a dreadful crime and the cricket results without any pause in between. And so I've been spending a lot of time lately looking mostly at colonial crimes. I feel a bit more of a, a safety net around, you know, there's a 100 years that have transpired, so it's not as raw, those, those wounds for those cases. Yeah, it's funny how uh, we kind of sometimes think of this as a a new trend, like especially in the last couple of years with podcasts, it seems like the true crime boom is a recent thing, but consuming like accounts of murder as entertainment, like you're saying, goes back hundreds of years, if not longer. Um, in your research, have you started drilling into the reasons that people might be interested in in steeping in those kinds of stories? I think people originally just wanted news and obviously with modern Australian beginnings as a penal settlement, everybody in some way was actually part of those news headlines. People were either crooks or they were involved in the business of incarceration, or they were living next door to a criminal. So there was this really intense immersion, I think, in true crime. And we brought it out from England. Um, the English had been making money out of true crime stories since printing presses were available. And it's really quite interesting that as much as true crime has changed over the centuries and it's become more empathetic and more sophisticated and if you want to use the term of pop culture and, and literary fiction, it has certainly become much more literary. But nobody has ever forgotten that there's money to be made out of victims. Yeah, God. That's what I find really disturbing about it. Um, 
Rachel. I think just the fact that so many, um, the way that true crime stories are constructed are largely to completely marginalise the victims. And I just wonder if we're able to consume it because we marginalise the victims themselves and we make them less than human. So if you consider the victims are often women, you know, Aboriginal women in particular, I'm really interested in, they become less than people. And it's so easy um, to distance ourselves and to like really delight or even consume these really horrendous wounds on their body. And I always wonder if it's because we just, the way they're constructed is so far removed from actually humanising the victim, I think might be part of it. And I think it, it still happens today, even in a lot of um, true crime stories where the victim is, is very much marginalised. Well, we're still asking when a woman is a victim, what was she wearing? What was she doing? Who was she with? And it becomes very much her on trial in a lot of cases. This makes me so curious then as to why it's predominantly women uh, consuming true crime, uh, especially when it comes to podcasts. Uh, In 2010, there was a study at an American university where two researchers were looking at the Amazon reviews left on true crime books and overwhelmingly it was women leaving reviews and women leaving positive reviews that they had really enjoyed reading those stories Um, and the researchers thought well we'll look at other genres that present um, violent narratives like stories of war and overwhelmingly it was it was men leaving reviews for those books and women didn't seem comparatively interested why as women are we so obsessed with like delving into stories where women overwhelmingly are the victims like I was thinking of my own like because I'm obviously just a novice and a consumer as well I was thinking that maybe um I don't know I wonder if there's some sense of empowerment you know I don't know whether women feel that they are gaining some sort of um, sense of empowerment by learning about these stories and and learning how to survive in some sense um the sort of cases I've been interested in in the past have been um, things like, I don't know if you know about, but the Shanda Shera murder over in um, America. And that really just piqued my interest because it involved four young girls and um, a child as a victim. And I was just really shocked at how that could happen. So I don't really know. I think it's, um, I don't know why women specifically are consuming these stories. Um and I just wonder if it, it maybe it's this really weird sense of, of taking control or something in some way. I think it's a complicated mix of why people read what they read. And I certainly think your point about women feeling empowered is really important because by reading these books, we also learn not just how crimes occur, but the aftermath of crime. We learn about how investigations unfold or perhaps don't unfold. We learn about the justice system and, you know, its successes as well as its failings, which I think is is really important. But it also, I think, true crime teaches us a more realistic fear. So a lot of women read crime fiction. That's been well known since, you know, the early 1900s as women as the main consumers of crime fiction stories. But while fiction today 
tries to teach us that we need to be frightened of serial killers. True crime does that as well, but it also teaches us to be frightened of domestic partners, for example, because true crime isn't looking necessarily for the glossy story that's going to impress an editor and a publisher. It's looking at those cases that have already happened. And for women in Australia, we're more at risk of being harmed by somebody that we know rather than some random stranger in the car park on the way home from work. Um, I think, yeah, empowerment must definitely be part of it. Uh, I don't know if I'd use the word empowerment to describe why I listen to so many true crime podcasts and watch the docos. I think um, maybe resourcefulness is part of it, that sometimes I feel, and this this is totally irrational, and when I explain this to people, I hear how irrational it is, but I feel like if I can amass knowledge from every crime that's happened to a woman before me, when it inevitably happens to me because of those statistics that you're talking about, Rachel, I'll be able to protect myself in some way. And I know that that is ludicrous, but like there's still a a little voice inside me that's like, just go on one more because that might be the one that does it. Like one more episode, that could be the one that saves you, which is so bizarre. It was interesting. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, like we all have these fears as women, I think, because of, you know, we're living in a society that views us as largely disposable in many ways. Like it's about that fear being seen not as irrational as justified. I wonder if that might be a part of it, you know, the fact that um, we have reason to be fearful in some way, if that makes sense. Like it just sort of popped up that maybe, you know, because we're constantly told different things I think maybe it's just in some ways it justifies a lot of our deepest fears hearing about uh, these really horrendous stories yeah there's um a concept called the gender fear paradox that kind of looks into that like it's like the chicken chicken egg situation do women seek out true crime narratives to comfort themselves or like steel themselves against um, potentially imminent violence or do we feel that that threat is like waiting just around the corner because we've primed ourselves um, by like internalising violence through entertainment Um, and I guess maybe the, the, the truth of true crime is somewhere in between that or bits of both it can also give us some reassurance there's a really interesting scholar working out of the united states jean murley and she's been looking at the real growth of true crime texts in particular since the 1980s and she says that true crime we know before we pick up the book what the ending is. And she talks about that idea of reassurance that if something terrible does happen to us, 
you know, she says the bad guy usually gets caught and there are all these systems in place and as brutal and as flawed as those systems can sometimes be, there is a general underpinning of wanting to create some sort of balance out of a crime event and restore justice as close as possible. I mean, for some people, justice will never be achieved. But there's this idea at the end of the, the true crime story that we see the incarceration usually, whereas crime fiction has this very neat fade to black and doesn't really deal with punishment in an overt way. You know, the killer is identified and, you know, the suspects were all neatly gathered and the finger is pointed. And that's usually where a crime fiction novel ends, whereas true crime gives us a bit more about what happens afterwards. And I think that for some people that's really important. Amy, your podcast is almost about the flip side of that or like the sliding door of that where the person who's been incarcerated almost certainly was not the person responsible. Do you want to tell us more about um, Curtin? Yeah, it's interesting because our podcast seems to be very different from a lot of um, other true crime podcasts and it really began with us looking into um, the prospect of innocence for an Aboriginal man in my hometown, Kevin Henry. Um, And within a month, we'd really found some really compelling evidence that pointed to his innocence. And we weren't even planning on doing a podcast. um, But for us, if we did it, we had to be quite sure that we had a lot of evidence to prove his innocence. And the reason we did that is because of the victim. The victim was an Aboriginal woman. And I felt that, um, you know, she had been reading back the transcripts of the case she had been lost completely in both the media reporting of the case and the court trial and one of the reasons for that is because she was an aboriginal woman and the crime was seen as a black on black crime in rockhampton and it was seen as a lifestyle murder in the words of one of the lawyers um so for me it wasn't so much doing a whodunit is kevin innocent is kevin guilty it was about proving his innocence and using the podcast to tell the story um, and we've been telling that story over three years. And part of that story is the wider, the way the justice system treats Aboriginal people, both men, women and children in a wider sense. But it was such a complicated story that we really wanted to tell it in a very Aboriginal way and through Aboriginal radio and then to try and get it on the internet to um, get it to as big a, um audience as possible. So it's very much been focused on justice for Kevin and we're still working with him. Um, to try and achieve that goal. So when I look at other podcasts, it it seems that we are a bit different in our aspirations just because we have a man who's currently behind bars and we have the family of the Aboriginal woman who was um, murdered who is still in, in undergoing this deep trauma. And I feel there's two injustices in that. There was an enduring injustice over Linda's death and an enduring justice over um, Kevin's incarceration um, and all of the trauma that stems from that. So... It was very sort of hard because it's specifically about violence within the Aboriginal community. So we're up against quite a few things, how we actually portray that violence in a way that does not further um, dehumanise the victim, um, but also um, puts forth the evidence so people can understand that actually Kevin Henry is very innocent. So I compare that to other um, 
cases around wrongful conviction where it's very much constructed as a whodunit and read it listeners are invited to sort of go, go through the evidence like what we're saying is that Kevin Henry is very very likely to be innocent and you should support him <laughs> so it's a bit different and maybe that's why it hasn't had the success um, as other podcasts centered around wrongful convictions. I've noticed, especially in true crime fandom, there is such a reticence to um, discuss or dismantle the pervasive whiteness around true crime, um, especially in Australia, and um, I'm finding that a real frustration at the moment, like around true crime stuff and about this like adjacent uh, paranormal and ghost story um, like cousin to true crime um, and uh, I mean I don't want you to perform the emotional labor of solving this for me but do you have any thoughts on how we can continue to dismantle the whiteness of true crime? Um, you know I was thinking about this and in relation to podcasts I think because I'm I'm not a huge consumer of true crime podcasts. I listen to sort of other more lighter podcasts, but I find um, with true crime, I think particularly with the podcast narrative, like the storytelling device, which is really, um, you know, started with Serial, it's very much centering the journalist. And so particularly with Serial, which was like an, a white journalist looking into a community she wasn't part of, that becomes, um, she becomes the impartial observer, but she's not really impartial because she comes with her own background and her own whiteness. You know what I mean? So I think specifically with podcasts, which is why I, I like documentaries a little bit more, even though it still has that same issue. Um, I think it might be changing in some ways those storytelling techniques, but I understand because they are really compelling when you're listening to a journalist or someone else, like an amateur investigator reinve- reinvestigating a case. It's really exciting in that podcast form. But I think it's it's just that centering of, of the journalist, you know. I think that's a real um, problem. And we're in a situation now where there have been a few podcasts made on um, Aboriginal stories, and I think that is the key. You can tell the difference when an Aboriginal person, for example, Alan Clark, who did Unravel, tells the story compared to a white journalist and a white outsider looking in, for example, wrong skin. So I think it really is even if you're telling a story that's um, about a community that's not your own, you might have to just like think of other ways to tell it, you know, not just follow, because I think a lot of people follow that serial template. Um, But I think it's a problem with storytelling and media as a whole, you know, and it, it goes back to those questions about um, how do you tell another person's story or even who has the right to tell a story and what's your end goal? Because I find um, a lot of the ways Aboriginal crime, Aboriginal violence, Aboriginal trauma is reported is really much this focus on black pathology and black dysfunction and never the strength within Aboriginal community. And you really mm. see the difference when uh, a non-Indigenous um, person is, is presenting that story. I think there's something about podcasts especially that feels so intimate that we kind of implicitly trust whoever is telling that story um, because it's being funneled into our brain through our ears using headphones like it's physically closer to us than watching a screen or reading a book and um 
I know that for me listening to podcasts, if I'm like laying in bed listening to podcasts, that's incredibly intimate and personal. Um, I'm wondering if either of you want to talk about how it feels to um, listen versus read versus watch. What does it feel like to you to to watch rather than listen? I I don't watch that much either, although I will confess to having binge-watched Making a Murderer because I was just so angry and wanted to to find out what happened at the end and it was, as we know, still unresolved. But I, I agree that listening uh, is a much more intimate experience and for me I feel quite uncomfortable often listening because it's harder to pause and check and go through some of those validations that Amy was talking about, you know, who is the authorial voice in this story? Whereas if I'm reading a true crime book, you know, I always will be drawn to texts that have lots of bibliography details and lots of references. I I want to be reassured that this person hasn't just trampled over a narrative because this is a great story and I'm going to write a great book and it's going to sell a million copies for Christmas. I I want to feel that I can trust the storyteller if that makes sense. And I think that it's easier to do that and check along the way with with a book I, or even if I'm watching a documentary, I'll, I'll usually have a laptop or something open I'll be fact checking as you know looking for newspaper articles or some sort of way to corroborate what's being said especially if it's somebody who is sort of dropped in and telling this story as Amy was talking about because very rarely are victims of crime or victims of the justice system able to have a free voice to tell their own story without any restrictions. And I think that that's a really challenging aspect of all formats of of the genre. Um, It was interesting you raised Making a Murder, Rachel, because I, I like, binge-watched it three times and each time I sort of had a different understanding of Stephen Avery's guilt. But it was interesting because, like, I fact-checked as well and... Um, you know, there's supposedly so much left out of that documentary. And even though I believe Brendan Dassey is completely innocent, um, you know, the, I really don't know if there was a wrongful conviction around Stephen Avery. But what I thought was so important about that documentary was just um, the focus on the police, um, the focus on the legal system and the defence and the prosecution, but particularly the focus on things like coerced, coerced confessions and really inadequate defence representation around Brendan Dassey and the thing I was frustrated about is that people were so obsessed um, even though you know it was very much a class issue but um, you know a white man was the star of that that story and there have been so many exonerations based on very similar um, you know miscarriages of justice in the in America which have all been based like predominantly African-American men you know things around faulty eyewitness memory um, shoddy forensics um, police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct, forced confessions are huge. 
a huge factor in wrongful convictions. But that's that making a murderer, um, even though I think there are a lot of flaws in it, it really um, led me to thinking about the things that um, led to wrongful convictions and actually looking over in Australia and seeing that we have a lot of the same ingredients over here, particularly um, affecting Aboriginal people. So I I think um, particularly with those documentary series and um, The Staircase was another one, um, can be really important because I was really drawn to it, um, drawn to these cases because you see them. But I, I thought they fleshed out those really institutional problems in the justice system really well, whereas, you know, you may have a lot of problems with the way making a murder was framed and them really pushing for Stephen Avery's innocence. But it really, I thought, um, opened up that issue to a really large audience. So I think, you know, like um, there can be some really good things that come out of that and and the fact that you do want to fact-check, and I think fact-checking is really, really good to do. So, yeah, I think they're in that way, true crime can be a really helpful way to examine the justice system and how it further marginalises people. Well, I was really obsessed with this idea of how many false confessions people give and under these, you know, really dreadful circumstances. And I just could not believe, and there were a couple of episodes I watched a couple of times, at the treatment of a child. And it was just, what is going on? You know, make it stop. And as you say, this is one case that's been picked up by a pair of filmmakers and how often those sets of circumstances are replicated, not just across the United States but here in Australia. And it was really frightening and I I found that the most frightening true crime issue that I've come across in the last few years with regards to if you don't understand and if you're poor and can't access the resources to help you understand the system that it's like this vortex, he just stepped in and there was no way he was ever going to get out. And he ended up with good lawyers, but... Yeah. And like I say, when you talk about Australia, I mean, we have that situation in Australia. Um, The thing I'm interested in is the fact that Australians will consume a lot of these cases around wrongful conviction overseas, but never look in our own backyard. Because when you talk about forced confessions, like that was Gene Gibson, who was just exonerated after seven years. And English was his sixth language. He had um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. He was really led and forced by the detectives to confess to a murder he didn't do. Um, And also Kevin Henry was forced um, to make a false confession. It was the only thing that actually tied him to the crime. There was nothing else. Um, And the confession was thrown out. 80% of the confession was thrown out at court um, because the judge said it hadn't been obtained voluntarily. But when you look into it, it's got all of the textbook signs of a forced confession. So for me, I'm really interested in the fact we're so outraged by making a murder and all these other cases, even um, like podcasts like Serial overseas. But we want to outsource that outrage overseas. We're not looking in our own backyard about the fact that, you know, we actually share a lot of these same problems with our justice system, um, but they just haven't been opened up yet. Um, Maybe because we want to be entertained. (laughs) I think that's the other thing. Like maybe in some way we do want to be entertained by it as well. So, yeah, I just hope that things like this, opening it up more would actually lead to change. 
Yeah, I hope so too. You can't see it because this is a podcast, but my face is very disgusted just at the thought of um, the the volume of miscarriages of justice in this area. I'm thinking about another ethical quandary that sort of sits adjacent to this about right of reply and how many true crime stories reconstruct narratives of deceased people who will never be able to respond to the way their story is being appropriated. Is that something that either of you think about, like the the inability for victims to exercise their right of reply? I'm studying this sort of issue in relation to media representations of violence against Aboriginal women. Um, but looking particularly about how Aboriginal women in particular are seen as completely disposable and almost like the violence that occurs um, that is perpetrated against them is inevitable. And often, you know, Aboriginal women are described largely not by their personalities and not like their resistance in their lives or not, you know, by the really human dimensions of their lives. They're really described by the wounds of their body. And so I'm really interested in how we as media can, I, like I'm, I'm looking into this concept called presencing, where how we presence um, in my field, Aboriginal women particularly. Um, and a lot of it has come from reading a lot of stuff over in Canada and a lot of scholarship around missing and murdered um, Aboriginal women in Canada who really just became um, just not even faces. They were just completely lost and their lives are seen as nothing and their deaths are seen as inevitable. And even in the media reporting, it was really just um, really condescending accounts of their them falling into disadvantage and not about them being human beings. So I constantly think about that. And that was a key part of um, our podcast was really trying to find a way um, to not compound the pain of Linda's family, which is the victim in the case I've been working on. And it's just really, really hard because, um, yeah, we are in a situation where, you know, um, whether it be Aboriginal women or women, women from other vulnerable communities are seen and, and painted in a, in a very certain way. You know, I think Judith Butler calls, you know, grievable bodies and ungrievable bodies. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I think it's, it's something I think about a lot and I don't think I'm there yet to understanding how we actually reverse that. Um, because it's centuries and centuries of indoctrination, you know, patriarchy um, and colonialism and imperialism, you know. So it's, it's really hard to counteract that. But I think we have to situate it in the whole of society and how it's structured to devalue certain groups of people. Amy, do you have any recommendations for further listening, reading or watching? Um, I... I'm sure that a lot of the things I've already watched, everyone else has watched, but I've, um, I really like a lot of books that, as I was saying before, um, really open up um, the issue of particularly wrongful convictions, so, or even just um, around the justice system, and a really good one I read, and I don't have the author's name, sorry, but last year was The Fact of a Body, which is all about um, when does a story of a crime actually start? Does it start with the murder or does it start... A long way back when um, the perpetrator was actually a child and looking at um, it's a memoir and um, a memoir and sort of a journalistic account of a certain case um, and also picking cotton I just read which is about one of the first um, 
exonerations on DNA, which is all about eyewitness memory, but also um, race relations, um, and is co-written by an African-American man who was wrongly accused of rape, um, served about 10 years, and the woman who actually accused him, um, and they became really good friends. So those two books I thought were really good and encourage everyone to read them. I read a lot of historical true crime. Um, I I should engage a bit more with issues that I can, you know, be outraged about now rather than just trying to use the examples of the past to say, no, no, this is still still wrong. But um, certainly one book that I've read and reread over the years is Janet Malcolm's The Journalist and the Murderer, and I just think it's a really great regular reminder of the ethics around telling true crime stories. But I think reading or consuming stories, if you're doing podcasts or documentaries, is so personal that you need to experiment and pick up books, go to a library, go to a bookshop, pick things up, read a couple of pages. If it's not for you, if it's too confronting, then put it down and try something else. You know, some people want to look at the investigation of a crime, but some people feel more comfortable reading about the legal aspects and the trial phase of bringing somebody to justice or perhaps not. So go out there and experiment and don't be afraid to not finish something if you decide it's not for you. And if you do finish it, you'll be able to find more in that mould. If I could recommend um, a book, I've just started reading it and I'm very taken in by it so far. Uh, It's called Dead Girls by Alice Bolan and it's not necessarily about true crime, well, not so far, but certainly about this idea of commodifying women's bodies, who is considered the right type of victim whose stories get to be told um and um how we find it permissible that men can continue to commit these atrocities over and over and don't and nothing ever really changes so that's it's been quite heavy so far but very um very searing really incredible writing Thank you both so much for your generosity today and all the labour that you've put into this. Um, I can't really tell you how much I appreciate it (laughs) at the end of um, the big conversation, but um, hopefully our listeners will pick it up and continue offline because it, it really is a integral conversation to be having at the moment. So thank you both very much. Thanks, Amy. Thank you so much. The Emerging Writers Festival brings you the Digital Writers Festival again in 2018. And you can find the full program live online now. Check it out at digitalwritersfestival.com and join us to listen, learn and play right here in hyperspace from the 30th of October until the 3rd of November. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs in Your Name. Find them on Facebook as Huntley Music. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples 
are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches.